We have quite a few upcoming meetings for the end of January and February. There are two on January 30th. The first is the 2024 Almond Meeting in Arbuckle. The second is the 2024 Almond Meeting in Woodland. On January 31st is the North Valley Nut Conference in Chico. On February 1st is the Tri-County Walnut Day in Tulare, California. There is also the Northern Sacramento Valley Prune Day up in Red Bluff. On February 2nd is the Quad County Walnut Institute in Stockton, California. On February 20th is the North Sacramento Valley Olive Day, and that is in Orland. February 21st is the Sacramento Valley Pistachio Meeting, that's in Woodland. February 22nd is the South Sacramento Valley Prune Day in Yuba City. And on February 29th, because this year is a leap year, we have the Northern Sac Valley Walnut Day, and that is in Red Bluff. As always, you can find in our show notes a link to the Sac Valley Orchards and the San Joaquin Valley Trees and Vines websites to find out more information about any of these meetings. I hope you enjoy this episode. This is Growing the Valley, a podcast by the University of California, Agriculture and Natural Resources. I'm one of your hosts, Luke Melliron, farm advisor for Butte, Tehama, and Glen Counties. I'm your other host, Phoebe Gordon, orchard farm advisor for Madera and Merced Counties. Today, I am speaking with Brittany Goodrich, who is a professor of cooperative extension in the agriculture and resource economics department at UC Davis. And we are going to be talking about the bee outlook for 2024. So welcome back to the podcast, Brittany. Thanks. It's always great to be here. Yeah. So I guess let's first start off with talking about the demand for bees last year. So just so we can kind of go over what's happened in the past before, you know, looking at what we're going to see this year. Yeah. So last year, you know, colony demand and the way I estimate colony demand is I use USDA numbers on planted acreage and I separate out the traditional almond varieties from the self-fertile varieties, the traditional varieties, I assume two hives per acre and then the self-fertile varieties. Because I assume one hive breaker. And so when I do that for 2023, we had, you know, about 1.4 million bearing acres of almonds that then required about 2.6 million colonies for almond pollination. And what was interesting about last year, though, I didn't hear about any crazy bee shortages or anything. Essentially, we used, according to USDA numbers, for the number of honeybee colonies in the U.S. on January 1 of 2023, we used virtually 99% of all commercial honeybee colonies in the U.S. And part of that was because last year, beekeepers saw some of the the highest winter mortality rates that they've seen. Since I think the Bee Informed Partnership started collecting data on this and back in 2007. So there were some really high colony losses last winter that led to us essentially using almost all of the bee colonies, which typically we had been in the like 
80 to 85 or 90 percent of of colony usage but last year we were very close to you using all of them that's amazing wow so i guess you know i know that we're not going to really know what shape the bees are in until you know they go through the winter but I know at least in California and I think some of the other parts of the West Coast, we got an absolute crazy amount of rain. So I'm assuming there's probably a lot more forage available for the bees. Does it seem like they're a little bit healthier uh, going into the winter than they were in previous years? It, Yeah, so it depends. Certainly the California bees that stayed here all year round are probably doing a lot better off than usual just because we had so much rain last year and so much forage. But we also have to remember that bees are coming from all over the U.S. And so I typically look at areas in um, like North Dakota, South Dakota. That's where most of our commercial honeybee colonies go to for honey production in the summer months. They weren't too bad in terms of drought uh, this year. North Dakota had a little bit of drought-like weather Mostly they were okay. The The areas of concern, though, that I found were Minnesota and, and Texas. And so in, you know, the towards the end of July and uh, early August, those areas had some really severe drought-like conditions. And so you do have a pretty significant number of colonies in those areas. I estimate if you add, there's about you know, 194,000 colonies in Texas during that time, 105,000 colonies in Minnesota. So that that's about 10% of the U.S. population of honeybee colonies at the moment. So there's potential that certain areas are going to have issues with their, you know, honeybee colony supply if they didn't have quality forage during those summer months. But in in California specifically, like we had, you know, a lot of forage for quite a while. So the bees were probably a little bit better off. Yeah, I went hiking in the foothills quite a bit. Oh my God, the, uh, the bloom was absolutely amazing. Yes, it was. Well, um, so I guess, you know, we won't know, like I said, how the bees are going to do until, uh, until next spring. But do you have any thoughts on what the demand for bees is going to be next spring? Yeah. So, I mean, again, just using my estimates, uh, one colony for self-fertile varieties and two colonies per acre for traditional, I estimate about 2.7 million colonies will be demanded in comparison to 2.6 million colonies last year. That's somewhat from additional bearing acreage coming or, you know, non-bearing acreage coming into bearing time periods. And so it's up a little bit from last year. There's a chance that those numbers are a little bit off just from the, the timing of when USDA reports come out. So that might be a little bit elevated, but I think we'll probably demand just about the same amount of colonies that, that we did last year. So it, it'll probably be pretty similar and then just hoping that we don't have really high winter mortality rates like we did last year. It's a little surprising to hear that the the demand is actually slightly higher since, you know, I know I've seen a lot of almond orchards being pulled out, especially on the West side. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I, I do look at some of this and I forgot to say earlier on that I do have an article coming out in West Coast Nut in the January issue 
which will cover all of these topics. It'll be on the 2024 Almond Pollination Outlook. But yeah, I do look into that because the Almond Board and Land IQ published these really interesting uh, almond removal reports. So we do have, they estimate that there were about 83,000 acres of almonds removed by September of 2023. And so that I calculate is about 6% of the bearing acreage in 2023 was removed. But then there's also a lot of of orchards because that's just the ones that were removed, right? So then they estimate that there was another 8,000 acres that were abandoned and haven't been removed yet. And then another 11,000 acres that were potentially abandoned. They're not exactly sure, but they may also be completely abandoned and and yet to be removed as well. So there's potential that more acreage is, is actually, you know, coming out than what's estimated. And so that's, you know, that's why I kind of hesitate when I say that, you know, it, it's slightly higher than it was last year. So the land IQ report comes out later than what the USDA report does. So that's where my estimates of 2.7 million compared to last year's 2.6 million colonies might be slightly overestimated based on just the timing. So what does that mean for bee prices for 2024? Yeah, so, uh, and I'll just go through a few prices from 2023 that comes from the California State Beekeepers Association survey. So last year, on average, uh, smaller strength colonies, so those are going to be four to six frames of bees, were on average about $178 per colony. The typical eight frame colonies, uh, that is kind of the industry standard, we're running about $198 per colony. And then the larger colonies were around that are around 10 to 12 frames, we're running about $205 per colony. So you can see that, you know, as you add more frames of bees, it's harder for the beekeepers to provide them. So they have to be compensated more. So they have a they asked their beekeepers what their projections are for 2024. They gave a projected fee on average of about $209 per colony. So they expect that maybe, you know, colony prices are going to go up a little bit. I kind of think with all of the removals that have been happening that, you know, the demand's kind of stabilized. So I think we can expect a relatively similar, relatively similar fees to last year. And again, that's said with a grain of salt, because that's barring, you know, another year where we have extreme winter mortality rates and then we can't find bees somewhere. But yeah, so I would expect things to be pretty similar to what they were last year. Okay. And I guess I have a question about, you know, why are bee prices not fully determined until the pollination season? Because I I, I guess maybe I should be asking when growers set up contracts with beekeepers, is there a agreed upon price or is there a price range? And how many growers are actually, or what percentage of growers actually do these contracts in advance? And how many uh, are just going to be negotiating at the last second to try to find some bees? Yeah. So I, I mean, I think, and, and I don't have a specific percentage right in front of me. I think I've maybe asked this question before and now I've forgotten what the answer is. But I would say a lot of growers are forward contracting with their beekeepers because they've oftentimes been working with that beekeeper for 
10, 15, 20 years. So they know, you know, that they're going to be working with that beekeeper and they set a price in advance. So for the most part, growers are doing that. But then you do have somewhat of a spot market where, you know, at the last minute, and, and some of this happens purely because if a, you know, if my beekeeper has a huge winter mortality rate, and they can't give me the bees, I have to find them somewhere or that beekeeper has to find them somewhere, right? And so then you may have to have uh, a, another beekeeper from Texas bring in more bees that they weren't planning to bring in. And so then the price goes up at the last minute. And so there is some of this and a lot of it's because we don't know how many bees are going to be available in February, just because of, you know, the timing and the winter mortality of of bees. There is some, you know, like I said, there's some of this last minute contracting, but I would say on average, you know, the growers are going to know what they're, they're paying in advance, but then things happen. And it is just sometimes difficult to find bees at the last minute. Do you have any advice for growers who might be looking to save money on pollination fees since almond prices haven't been great for the past couple of years? And, you know, they might make a turnaround after this harvest season, but there are still quite a lot of nuts, you know, that haven't been sold yet. Yeah. So I think this is the question of, I guess, this year and and probably last year too, and so one of the things that I, I really highlight and it, yeah, I've probably highlighted it too much at this point, but it never hurts in case one person hasn't heard of it. But most almond growers or most almond acreage is enrolled in federal crop insurance. And so what growers really need to be aware of is that not having enough bees is not an insurable cause of loss for your orchard. So basically the you know, USDR RMA stipulates that you need to have at least two hives per acre at a six frame average to meet crop insurance requirements. There's some other flexibility with regards to like, you know, cell fertile varieties that I won't necessarily get into, but you can also have that equivalent just in terms of the number of frames per acre. So that means you could do something like one and a half hives per acre at an eight frame average, you could do, you know, that would meet the 12 frames per acre, you could do one hive per acre at a 12 frame average, and that would meet that minimum requirement. So you really need to make sure and check with your crop insurance agent that you're, you know, if you're going to do any tweaking to the number of hives per acre and or your, your colony strength requirement, that you really check with your crop insurance agent because what you don't want to happen is to get it so that you no longer are qualifying for a crop insurance indemnity just based on the number of bees that you stock per acre. So, but I I always encourage growers to talk with their beekeeper. Uh, I mean, beekeepers and growers, they know that this is a long run business for both of them. So if you can do things for your beekeeper, like providing locked gates or security because hive theft has been such a big issue, they may give you a discount on your pollination fee. If you plant bee-friendly cover crops, it's a little late for that now, but uh, something to consider for the future. They'll likely 
or maybe not likely, but they might be willing to give you a discount or it might just make them more likely to work with you in the future because it's really helpful for the bees. And, you know, engaging in a discussion about pesticide risk and what you can do to minimize the pesticide risk for any bee colonies that are in your orchard. So, you know, just communicating with your beekeeper or pollination broker and figuring out what works for both of you. They might be willing to provide you with a lower strength colony and just stock more per acre, a higher density, and then you have a lower pollination fee uh, per hive. Uh, so there's a lot of different things that you can do. And so I just stress like communicate with your beekeeper and, and try and figure out what works best for, for both of you. So is there is there anything that you wanted to add that I didn't ask about, about bees at least? So I, I guess the only other thing that I'll add, and I think that Phoebe, you can link this in your show notes, but I have, so I put together a, a resource on almond pollination where I've, I've basically written an almond pollination outlook for every year since about 2018. That's got a lot of uh, good information with previous surveys that I've done. I have links to all of the podcasts that I've done with you, Phoebe, and others. And so if people go to almondpollination.ucdavis.edu, they can go there and find all of those resources. And I have specifically links for growers and beekeepers. And then there's also some sample pollination contracts that are linked there. So that's a resource that's available for, for folks that are interested. So before we go, I did want to ask you about one thing, and that is some work you've been doing, putting together a navel orange worm economic management tool. I guess what got you interested in this problem to begin with? Well, I mean, to be quite honest, it was when Houston and yourself approached me about a survey that you had done. And then we started working together on an academic paper looking at, you know, the practices for for navel orange worm pest management amongst all tree nut growers. And so that's kind of where this idea started, because uh, oftentimes growers often think about things individually where you have, you know, oh, I need to apply this this pesticide application and it's going to cost me X amount of dollars to apply and X amount for the materials cost. But when we're thinking about navel orange worm, what I realized through this, this research with you in Houston is it's really this integrated pest management whole, what do I want to call it? Whole program that you're applying for the navel orange worm. And so that's where the basis for this idea came from. So that way I wanted to make an app where growers could, or PCAs or whoever is interested could go in and put all of the different costs associated with integrated pest management for navel orange worm. So things like winter sanitation, they can input mating disruption costs if they're using them, costs of of pesticide applications. And then when you have this this program all put together, we know that there's going to be some expectation for the amount of, of, you know, damaged nuts that come out of this program. We always typically aim for, you know, less than 2% damage, but that can vary a lot. And so then what this IPM app does is you can plug in two different IPM programs, and then the, the expected 
damage rates for the nuts and it spits out what your expected returns from those naval orange worm management programs would be. So that way you can compare and contrast different programs. How are you calculating the the amount of money that a grower might make based off of their damage percentage? Yeah, so that's a good question. So we do have some some default values for, you know, winter sanitation in terms of dollars per acre and pesticide applications and mating disruption. And those primarily are estimates that come from our cost and return studies, which uh, is a program that I run. And we calculate, you know, the cost and returns for all all tree nuts and, and other commodities. But so those costs for winter sanitation include things like you know, labor, machine labor from shaking the nuts to the ground and and destroying them to hand pulling labor as well. And so we include all of those those different costs. And then the way we calculate the expected returns is that we actually look at we've gotten blue diamond growers have an online, well, it's also printed as well, but they have, a, you know, their crop delivery information and they have basically a premium and or deduction schedule for uh, rejected nuts from, well, everything, but uh, a lot of times it's naval orange worm damage. And so then what the, the calculator does is take the expected reject rate that you put in there and it coordinates with the Blue Diamond payment schedule. So then it gives you an expected quality premium or deduction based on that expected reject rate at the handler. And so then through that, you can get either a higher or a lower price for your almonds, uh, which then affects your your total expected net revenues from that, that IPM program. That sounds great. I guess we can probably put a link to it in our show notes so that folks don't have to go looking for it since I know if it's hosted on a, a UC and our website, the URL is going to be very, very long. <laughs> yes, yes, that's for sure. So definitely look in the show notes. I envision eventually and, and hopefully just, yeah, it depends on when our IT people can get to it. But I'd like to also host it through the cost and return studies website. So you can look for it there, which uh, you can go to coststudies.ucdavis.edu and it will hopefully be linked on that website as well. Okay, awesome. Well, thanks so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Growing the Valley, a UC A&R podcast. You can find out more about this episode at our website, growingthevalleypodcast.com. We'd like to thank the Almond, Pistachio, Walnut, and Prune Boards for their support. We'd also like to thank my sister, Muriel Gordon, for writing and recording the theme music.